Acts chapter 18, listen to the word of the Lord. This, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God, contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And so reads the word of God regarding the experience of Paul in Corinth. We come to a place then in Luke's narrative today Here on Paul's second missionary journey, we come to a place that has some unique elements in it, and you can hear it as we read them. You could read this initially and sort of say, oh, kind of a normal experience in Corinth, and uh, let's move on to the end of this second journey, and it comes to a close after his lengthy stay in Corinth. Let's, Let's move on into the third journey and see Ephesus, because that's a big time church in New Testament record. But there are some unique elements here in Paul's stay in Corinth that I think we can find very encouraging when we spend a little time looking at them and considering what they mean in the context in which they arose. Here, for instance, is where we learn of Paul's profession by which he supported himself 
It's become a metaphor in our day. When you're a tent maker, that just means you're working in some other area to support your involvement in another, usually your involvement in gospel ministry. Tent makers are people who who pay their own way as they do gospel ministry. Here is where we find out that Paul was a tent maker, and it's where the metaphor is anchored. But he literally made tents, as did Aquila and Priscilla, his, his newly found friends here in Corinth. They had been from Rome. We'll say more about them as we move through the text, but these two became lifelong friends, and Paul meets them right here in this text, and they worked together for a time. The only place we know of Paul taking time away from gospel ministry to work, although the implication from his testimony in a number of places is that he did this all along the way. Here we also see God speak to Paul with a unique and timely message something that was unique during his time of missionary journeys. God communicated with him here in Corinth. And we can read something of the context because of that statement and that experience that God facilitated for Paul. And oftentimes, we ourselves can go to that very passage of Scripture and be sweetly encouraged by the word that the Lord gave to Paul on that day because it's a word that is true for Christians throughout the generations. There's specific application to Corinth, to be sure, but there's reassurance about the presence of God with his people that we find very comforting and encouraging even still today. So God speaks to Paul here to reassure him in the midst of of some hard and fearful circumstances And that's what can kind of fall into the background as we read this account of his ministry in Corinth. That's why we want to take a little time with the text today. God speaks to Paul to reassure him in the midst of some hard, fearful circumstances, and we should listen in. And what we should hear are three distinct things, and you can see them listed there in your bulletin. Here's our outline for this morning. We're going to hear an old precedent experienced again now in the Corinthian synagogue That's verses 1 through 8. Secondly, we're going to hear a new precedent established in the Roman court in verses 9 through 17, and that'll take us through the text. Then we're going to zero in on three practical implications from this story that can be helpful to us today. And really, it's only one implication that we're going to take with us. We're just going to look at it through three different lenses or perhaps from three different vantage points when we get there to the third section. So... Let's, let's move through this text together. Let's be encouraged by Paul's experience, and let's look first here at this old precedent that it's experienced once again here in the Corinthian synagogue. It is uncertain here in verse 1 why Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. We're told here that he did, but we're not initially certain why he did. But it appears as though it may have happened before Silas and Timothy rejoined him. Do you remember back in chapter 17, verse 14, he was heading out of Berea, headed toward Athens. He was accompanied there by a crew, and he said, make sure Silas and Timothy join me here. He was in Athens at the time. So here we see him arriving in Corinth, and it could initially appear to have happened before Silas and Timothy actually came back and joined him. So they didn't come to Athens. 
But actually, I think they probably did. We talked about that a little bit when we were back in chapter 17. Here we can see it again. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, especially the first couple of verses, it suggests that both of them perhaps did rejoin Paul right there in Athens and then were immediately sent back to Macedonia. He mentions only Timothy there in 1 Thessalonians 3, but he does say that, that he was left at Athens alone. So the suggestion is that Silas must have been dispatched somewhere as well, and we think probably to Philippi. So they rejoined him in Athens. Timothy is sent to Thessalonica. We know that he went there, Silas, likely to Philippi or some other place in Macedonia. But regardless, it may have been at this point then in sending them back to Macedonia, that Paul left and went over to Corinth. And so now he's alone in Corinth, just as he had been alone in Athens. But very quickly after coming to Corinth, he meets some brand new friends and some friends that he ends up mentioning a number of times uh, through the remainder of his ministry. We can see their involvement a couple of places here in Acts 18, but we also hear him refer to them very warmly in Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Timothy 4, um, talking about them as being partners in the work. Also, we hear two different names for this particular woman. Luke uses Priscilla, her, her familiar name, but Luke always uses the familiar name. It's just one of the characteristics of Luke telling his story, he uses the familiar name of people, while Paul used her, her more formal name, Prisca. It may have even been her surname, and it's quite possible that she was from a family in Rome who was known to be noble and influential. But we also know that Aquila was a Jew, so because of that, they were not in Rome any longer. They came to Corinth, we're told right here in verse 2, when the emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. And so we know that because Aquila was Jewish, they are out of that city. We can read a little bit about this event. It probably happened in about AD 49, the the Roman historian Suetonius writes a bit about it, and according to him, this edict from Claudius was caused by, quote, the Jews' constant riots at the instigation of Crestus. And we don't know who Crestus was, but it's quite possible that he's referring to Christ, to Jesus himself, which would likely be a reference then to the, the, the gospel community, the Jews were rising up against the gospel. So Suetonius was misidentifying Jesus as the immediate cause of these riots. But as several commentators point out, it is not hard to see that the riots, the, the instigator of the riots were the Jews responding to the gospel. So they had surely been caused by the gospel. A couple of other things that are interesting to note about Corinth. It became the capital of Achaia, that province, that Roman province, in about 27 B.C. It had been a, a wild and a proud city before Rome's takeover. It was destroyed in 146 B.C. And then Julius Caesar rebuilt it in 44, about 100 years later, and honored himself in the full name of the city, Laus Iulia Corinthus is what Julius Caesar named it, which translated means Corinth, the praise of Julius. Humble guys back in those days, weren't they? 
Um, we'll move on from that. Given its strategic location at the crossroads of the north-south land trade and east-west sea trade, it was a thriving city, perfectly situated. Location, location, location is what makes the place valuable and prominent, and Corinth was, was situated very well as a city of commerce, but also the temple of Aphrodite was there, so it was a religious city, again, filled with idols, the way that Paul had talked about Athens. Aphrodite, the goddess of love. You can just imagine the cultic rituals that went along with the worship of Aphrodite. Because of that, Corinth, the noun, was also turned into a verb form, and the verb form meant fornication. It was at Corinth that you could find any pleasure. That's the sort of city that Paul landed in and was now working in and preaching the gospel in all by himself with no team. But back to Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. They not only had faith in common, as we mentioned, but they also had trade in common. Verse 3, they were tent makers and And evidently, at this stage of his ministry, Paul needed to work for a little while. It's interesting to note that he witnessed in the synagogue, what do we see in verse 4? Every Sabbath. So he's not there daily like we heard about in Athens. Paul's had to slow down a little bit and make a little money here is what it sounds like. Do you think that was a situation that might have had some pressure attached to it? How do you feel when funds are running out and you have to stop your primary engagement and spend a little time making some money. I think we don't have to work very hard to read into this some of the anxiety that might have been going on in Paul's life. And he he talks about the different things that he's worried about at different times. Most often it's the churches, but he also has a fair amount to say about gifts that came at just timely moments. But here we see Paul taking some time out from gospel ministry to actually spend time making a little bit of money. Yet even without his companions, too, he continued his pattern. Even though he was working, probably through the week, he was still doing his work in the synagogue every Sabbath. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. This can make it sound like when they arrived, they found him committed to the word, But if you were to look at the New International Version translation, they say, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. The way it's stated here makes it sound like he began preaching with greater focus and with fewer distractions once Silas and Timothy got there. And that does appear to be clearer as to what's being said here. Paul was working and reasoning in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And when Silas and Timothy arrived, he was able to give himself fully to it once again. This may have been due to the fact that he was reunited with his helpers and therefore had some assistance and maybe they could do some work to support the team. But it also could have resulted from financial aid that came from the Macedonian churches. Do you remember in our study of uh, 2 Corinthians and also of Philippians, that we read about how generous these 
Macedonian churches in the midst of their trial, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their hardship. They had given sacrificially to the work of Paul. They had given sacrificially to the needs of the church in Jerusalem. Perhaps it was that reason why Paul could now focus because he just received a financial gift from this region. We don't know that for certain, but we're just putting together the elements that we do know of Paul's life, and Silas and Timothy rejoined him from that area. His spirit was also definitely lifted when we see Silas and Timothy return to him. It was lifted by the news that this church in that volatile city of Thessalonica was actually doing well. And folks, here we start, we just feel the human element of Paul's life and ministry. He's he's there working in Corinth, waiting for his friends to return. And we hear in 1 Thessalonians 3, as he meets up again with Timothy, verses 6 through 8 there tell of Paul's great joy in hearing that the Thessalonians are walking with the Lord and doing well despite the circumstances that he knew they were facing in terms of persecution while he had been there among them. And remember that he had only ministered in that synagogue, according to Acts 17, for three Sabbath days. It's possible that Luke hasn't recorded Paul's full stay in Thessalonica, but it's quite possible that he has. He may have only been there three weeks. And now he's hearing a report that that three weeks was profitable and that this church is doing well, and he's encouraged and he's uplifted And it didn't take long, though, here in Corinth, even being encouraged, didn't take long with him being back into regular gospel ministry for him to start feeling some of the very same opposition now here that he had felt in Thessalonica and Berea, and even to some extent in Athens. It didn't take long for him to wear out his welcome among these Corinthian Jews. Verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled him, two very strong words. They weren't just opposed to his teaching. They were opposed to his person. They reviled and denigrated. They insulted Paul. When, he, when they opposed and reviled him, he, he shook out his garments And he said to them, your blood be on your own heads, recalling some of the language of the Jews at the crucifixion of Jesus. This is on your own heads. And they said, his blood be on us and on our children. Chilling statement. Here, Paul is using that same imagery. This is your own responsibility, Jews, for rejecting the gospel that I'm proclaiming. Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. I have done everything that I could. We hear him tell the Ephesian elders that that he didn't stop at anything. He was faithful, dispensing the whole counsel of God. And we hear right here in Corinth, the very same thing is being said. This description here in verse 6 is unusual. It's another one of those unique elements in this record of Corinth. We know Paul has experienced persecution before, but, but here in Corinth, it, it, it's on a different level. 
He was opposed and reviled. He shook out his clothing. The image is from the Old Testament where you shake the dust off your feet or the teaching of Jesus as he sent out the 72. If they don't receive the gospel, shake the dust off your feet. Have nothing to do with that city and move on to the next. Paul here is shaking out his clothing against the Jews in Corinth. There's a hard circumstance going on here. We're not getting a lot of the details of what he was facing But Paul is under the gun at this point, and he's telling them as he leaves, I'm innocent with regard to the proclamation of the gospel to you. From now on, he says, I will go to the Gentiles. Not an uncommon practice, but look at verse 7. After he left, he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. You You can't miss this. Uh, yeah, Paul is shaking the dust off his feet, but he's moving right next door and the gospel is continuing the ministry. That's an affront. That's a statement of courage. That's a statement of commitment. That's a statement of defiance. It's also a statement of the fact that I can't be concerned with you any longer and I'm not going to waste my time searching for something else. Titius Justice lives right next door to the synagogue. That's fine with me. The people will just come next door to hear the gospel. It's a bold, courageous move, but it's also a move that has a metaphorical meaning in Paul's day, just like it would in ours. We're just going to move next door and keep telling our story. You know what that is. You know what that means. Sometime during that process, though, injury was added to insult. The synagogue leader, Crispus, verse 8, and his entire household were converted The synagogue leader, they all believed in the Lord and were baptized, Luke records here, and the same was true for many others among the Corinthians. So there's what's going on in Corinth. There's the old precedent experienced again in the Corinthian synagogue, opposition But in the midst of that opposition, faithful gospel ministry continuing and gospel fruit being born, we've learned from the beginning of Luke's record that salvation is of the Lord. So when conversion is happening, God is at work blessing the ministry of His Word, blessing the proclamation of the gospel. And yet Paul is experiencing persecution perhaps on a level that he had not yet faced based simply upon seeing how he reacted to it and what Luke recorded of that encounter with the Corinthian Jews. So let's move on from there into part two, a new precedent established in the Roman court in verses 9 through 17. Just keep moving through this story and appreciating some of what we see and hear here. Interestingly, immediately after this happened, this this, uh, conversion of Crispus and his family as the the ruler of the synagogue, Paul received another of those direct interventions from God that we, we do see at different points, but we don't have another one of them tied right here to the missionary journeys. So Paul received one of those direct interventions from God that encourage him and strengthen him in the midst of his circumstances. What does the text say? Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many 
in this city who are my people. A word from the Lord. Did Paul need this word? It would surely appear so, insinuated from what we have seen so far here. But do you remember his opening section of his letter to the Corinthians? In chapter 2, verse 3, when he says to the Corinthian church, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's Paul's own testimony about his ministry in Corinth. Weakness, fear, much trembling. These circumstances, others besides, we don't know all of the details, but we know that's where Paul's heart was from his own testimony. Quite likely it was due to his experiences in Thessalonica and Berea and now seeing that they are coming back upon him here in Corinth. Quite likely to the fact that he was alone here in Corinth at the beginning of his ministry time here. Perhaps the opposition began before Silas and Timothy returned and he's, he really is on his own, got a couple of new friends, but... But Paul's by himself here in this thriving, pulsing city filled with wickedness. It's an unsettling circumstance. But we can also see right here that Paul had a response to the Corinthian Jews that we haven't heard him say prior. Magnifying again. his perspective and the things that he's facing. These things taken together make it seem like Paul was having a uniquely difficult time here in Corinth. Yes, he saw the ruler of the synagogue believe in the Lord together with his entire household, but still tensions were rising such that shortly thereafter, or so it would appear, verse 12, the Jews made a united attack on him. Once again, they come together to attack Paul with one voice. After just having heard, no one will attack you to harm you, we see that the Jews made a united attack on him. Think that could have been unsettling to Paul? God, didn't you just say no one would attack me to harm me? What is this? Do you ever find yourself in circumstances that seem entirely inconsistent with the promises that God has made in his word? Here, in the course of just a couple of verses, we've got the same word used, God telling Paul it won't happen, and then Luke recording that it did. Paul's in a hard spot. The Jews made a united attack on him, and brought him before the tribunal. They took him to court. Saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. We've heard this before. This is a new layer on this one. There's a new layer here. The whole situation just had to be unsettling, just as it had to seem troublingly familiar and yet magnified in a number of ways. One of the greatest fears we would have in our day is opposition to the point where we're taken to court.
The unsettling, troubling circumstances, our confirmation of that comes from right in the text again, and an unusual, in fact, an unprecedented expression from God saying the words that we've heard. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. Sounds a lot like Jeremiah, doesn't it? The ladies are studying Jeremiah, and you hear reassurances of that sort in that prophet and others. Isaiah, go on preaching, though they're not going to respond. Part of the call of Isaiah. Here, Paul, hearing the same thing. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. This should bring comfort, does it? Despite the circumstances that Paul is facing and the ones that come upon him even after hearing it, so it would appear, is he going to trust God in this affirmation or is he going to trust his own read on his circumstances? This should bring comfort, these words from God. And it would appear as though they did because the next thing we see is that the team stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half, second in length only to the three years that he spent in Ephesus on the next journey. Still, I wonder if Paul doubted Jesus' words. I wonder if he doubted when the Jews made a united attack on him and brought him before the tribunal. I wonder if he questioned God. Once again, he was charged with persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And as we just mentioned, evidently, though, this time, not referring to Jewish law, but referring to Roman law, because surely Gallio had no interest in the Jewish law. He makes that clear from his own statement here. That is just the case. We can read on a history of of Rome that they did not permit the propagation of new religions. Judaism was an accepted and established belief in Rome. A collegium licitum is what it's called, a, a legal religion. And so these Jews were saying, in effect, when they brought Paul before the tribunal, when they brought him before Gallio the proconsul, They were saying to him that Christianity was a new and a different cult, distinct from Judaism, and they wanted him punished for spreading a false religion, spreading an unapproved religion in Rome, and therefore offending Roman law. But Gallio said no. He said no to this. This case has to do with your own law. Verse 15. And in so doing, that was the end of the matter. It's interesting to note here, before we even finish this scene, that because it was tried before a Roman proconsul, any judgment by him, by Gallio, would become legal precedent there in Achaia and perhaps even have some influence empire-wide. Remember, a proconsul was the one that was appointed by the Roman Senate, to actually be the the legal ruler, the governor in a given area. It was the procurators who were the agents of the emperor who just had a presence in the different area. 
This was a serious trial that Paul faced here before Gallio. But as Gallio said, since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, Jews, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things, and he drove them from the tribunal. That's what actually happened. There now is the new legal precedent in Achaia under Gallio. He didn't consider Christianity a new religion, but established, uh, but essentially a new sect within Judaism. So he threw the case out of court. Now the important matter here is not so much whether Gallio was technically right or wrong, but that now there was legal precedent in a Roman province connecting Christianity and Judaism, and therefore giving Christianity that same approved status that Judaism enjoyed. That's a pretty amazing legal precedent. Persecution of various sorts continued on for decades, even centuries after this point. Indeed, it it stepped up mightily just a few years later. This is only perhaps a year or two, at the most three, before Nero ascended to the rule there in Rome. But this was one of the first legal opinions historically in line with the eventual full acceptance of Christianity under Constantine in 313, and it came under Gallio, the Roman proconsul here in Corinth. Historically, just an interesting and important thing to note. But in the wake of the trial, staying here with Acts 17 and finishing this text, in the wake of the trial, there was more violence, even more violence. Verse 17, they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, evidently the new ruler after Crispus is displaced by receiving the gospel. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now the question is, what is going on here? Uh, it's unclear who they refers to here in verse 17. They all seized Sosthenes. One possibility is that it was the Greeks who'd watched the proceedings and seized Sosthenes, taking the opportunity to express their own anti-Jewish feelings immediately after seeing Gallio, that Gallio was unwilling to get involved in Jewish affairs. And if that were the case, there is potentially a positive outcome here because as many have written, groundless prosecution was a serious problem in the Roman world at this time. And during Paul's lifetime, laws were being passed in the Roman Empire to discourage the practice of accusing enemies just in order to have them locked up for a time when they really had no case against them. That was a problem in Rome, and it appears as though, you know what, Gallio may have actually been taking a stand against this. But if this were the case allowing the ruler of the synagogue then to be beaten publicly seems an odd way for Gallio to reinforce his new legal precedent. So it's probably not talking about the Greeks. A better possibility is that the Jews themselves turned on Sosthenes following the conversion of Crispus, and perhaps they turned on him precisely because he took this matter before the Roman court and in effect forced the unfortunate ruling that declared Christianity now to be a legal religion in Rome. 
connecting it forever in Rome's eyes with Judaism. It could be that the Jews themselves were frustrated, and I think that this is probably what was going on, and they beat the ruler of the synagogue for putting them in such a singularly unfortunate situation or position with Rome. But you know what? It may have even gotten worse from there as God continued doing his work. Paul's first letter to Corinth is co-authored by someone named Sosthenes. It's quite possible then that the second ruler of the synagogue in a row had received Christ as Savior. That doesn't happen here. But it would seem unusual that these were two different Sosthenes people, one of leadership capability to be part of Paul's writing of the letter to Corinth if he weren't the same guy who was appointed to lead the synagogue after Christmas had received Christ. So that's what was going on in Corinth. A little more than might meet the eye as you just read through this account. But let's now turn our attention to see three practical implications for us, which we said before are just three different ways of saying exactly the same thing and understanding how we view God in the midst of our own circumstances. Three implications for us today that I think are worth writing down and remembering. First, the message and messengers were under God's sovereign care even as he used them to accomplish his sovereign purpose. The message and the messengers were under God's sovereign care here in Corinth even as he used them to accomplish his sovereign purpose. We can see this through several noticeable events and occurrences that happen here in Corinth. First, Paul's rhythms in money-making and gospel witness were unique here in Luke's account of what went on in Corinth. Paul's own experience in the city was different. We see God working with him differently as compared to what he did in other cities. Is God perhaps providing a little bit of rest and respite as well for Paul as he puts him in a position where he's going to need to work to make some money? A little time away, he's only reasoning in the synagogue once a week while his friends are gone? We see that happening. Something different in Corinth by God's sovereign design. Secondly, we see that he made new friends in this money-making pursuit, but he also made new enemies in his gospel work. God is involved in that. We see that. That's why God speaks to him in the midst of it. That's number three. We still see God's sovereign hand in both of these. His friends became significant ministry partners doing work along with him in gospel ministry. And the uprising of the Jews who opposed and reviled him in verse 6 resulted in the positive decision of Gallio. Again, God accomplishing his sovereign work through the messengers and through the message. Beyond that, fourth, we see Paul received God's reassurance both of his personal safety and of the importance of his coming work. And through it all, fifth, Significant conversions took place. Conversions, always the work of God. God is active in this story. And friends, this same God is sovereign over us and our work still today. Our lives are still in his hands 
and we can trust them in them. The message and the messengers were under God's sovereign care even as he used them to accomplish his sovereign purpose. And we see God doing just that in Corinth. Second, God's sovereign care was operating even when it could have seemed notably absent. God's sovereign care was operating even when it could have seemed notably absent. If Paul hadn't felt this opposition from the Jews... He may not have received this word from the Lord here in verses 10 and 11. A word which brought great comfort and encouragement to him, I'm sure, but has brought comfort and encouragement to Christians in every generation of the church ever since. Remembering that even in the midst of circumstances like this, God is active making and keeping promises. And if he hadn't been dragged into court before Gallio, that verdict that he delivered would have never happened. Paul's suffering here in Corinth is the very place where he sees the sovereign hand of God at work. God's sovereign care was operating even when it could have seemed notably absent. His circumstances could have seemed to be the very proof that God was unfaithful to his word. And yet, they were the context in which God's faithfulness was proven yet again. My friends, if we recoil from the tough experiences in life while continuing to take a stand for Christ or even just to walk with Christ, if we recoil from the tough experiences in life or if we take them personally, We risk missing out on the joy of observing the climax of what God is doing at any given moment. If we give up midstream, we don't see God's faithfulness proven. Paul has promised, no one will attack you to save you, to, to harm you. And then the Jews attack. If we stop in the middle and say, God is unfaithful, we miss the outcome. We miss the climax of what he's doing at any given moment. He gives us his promises in the midst of our circumstances precisely in order for us to hold to them even when it looks like he's not present or not at work. And then we see a faithful God prove himself faithful yet again. God is not against us. Not those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior. He is not against us. He is for us, and His promises are made for a purpose. Third, our confidence in God's sovereign care is well-placed even when we haven't yet seen the outcome. Remember, we're saying, we're saying the same thing three times from three different angles. The message and messengers were under God's sovereign care even as he used them to accomplish his sovereign purpose. God's sovereign care was operating even when it could have seemed to be notably absent. And now third, our confidence in God's sovereign care is well-placed even when we haven't yet seen the outcome of our circumstances. It is never the wrong thing to trust God in the midst of hardship. 
We should take confidence in God from Paul's experience right here, not needing his vision to be repeated in our lives, but drawing from the very reassurance that he experienced there in Corinth. God is in control. Even when all observable appearance is to the contrary, our God is still in control. When we look around in our day, do we see evidence that it appears God is not in control any longer? It surrounds us on every hand, doesn't it? Do you believe it's actually true? Of course not. Of course it's not true. Do you worry that maybe it's not true? We do that all the time. Thus, Acts 18, great help to us. Here in Acts 18, we see just a snippet view of this very truth that our confidence in God is well-placed even when circumstances say otherwise. We see just a snippet of it here. In fact, we said at the beginning, we can read this passage and miss it. But you can't read and miss it in, for instance, the book of Job that has been part of our Scripture reading these last couple of Sundays. Just last week in the book of Job, we... We see the curtain of heaven drawn back so that we understand the context of Job's suffering and the fact that something is going on in the unseen world that Job has no idea of whatsoever. He's just experiencing the reality of a hard life right there on earth where it could seem like God is being unfaithful. And the whole struggle of the book of Job is Job trying to come to grips with the fact that I didn't do anything wrong. Now, Job is both right and wrong when he says that. He's done everything wrong. He's a sinner in need of God's grace for salvation. But Job isn't really forgetting that. He continually reminds himself of God's grace and mercy. But he can't make sense out of his circumstances in light of the faithful God being present in the world, having made promises. We see the picture played out on a much bigger, grander stage in that book. And that's where we learn with confidence that our confidence in God's sovereign care is well-placed even when we haven't yet seen the outcome, even when we're in the midst of the battle. We see that there's always much more going on in the presence of God, much more going on in the purpose of and the plan of God, then we are able to see here and now. But the net result, the undeniable outcome, the unavoidable conclusion is that all things are in God's hands. And He is worthy of our trust, worthy of our confidence, even when things can seem like they're going terribly wrong. Fixing our confidence in Him at such times is still our best move. It's our only move. He is still for us. And He is working for our good, even still in our day, just as He was for Paul in Corinth, just as He was for Job in his day. Where do you need to trust God today? In what circumstances? Do you need to exercise your confidence in Him? Trust Him with the outcome. Where? Where in your life today 
It's somewhere for every single one of us. I guarantee it. We are all in a place where we need to trust God in the midst of our circumstances and believe that he's faithful despite what we see around us. In what hard circumstances do you need to remember that God is for you and that he has demonstrated that in Christ? And perhaps that's just it. Perhaps you need to trust Christ as Savior today. So you haven't yet entered into the place where you can say with confidence, God is for you. If that's the place where you need to trust God today, I urge you, trust him today, right there. Trust Christ as Savior and be reconciled to God that you might know the joy of this confidence in the midst of your circumstances. But for those of you who are already trusting Christ for your eternal salvation, where do you need to trust him today for provision, for guidance, for protection, for deliverance? Where? Let's take a moment and pray together and answer that very question. We'll only give you a moment right now, but it's a question that you need to answer today. Where do you need to trust God and remember that he's good and that he's faithful? Where? Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is today to be reminded of Paul's experience there in Corinth to increasingly see the vulnerability he must have felt, the weakness that he must have known, even as he himself confessed it to the believers there when he wrote them his letter. But how we are inclined to come away from that account believing that God is good and present and doing his work constantly. Oh, Father... I pray that you would help us in our own circumstances to trust you as much as we do when we read the account from Acts 18. That when we're feeling like Paul must have felt in that text, that the same confidence we feel reading about it is the confidence that we will experience as we go through it. Do your work in us through the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, through the spirit that has been given to us to make us alive in him and give us the hope of eternal salvation. And, oh, Father, as we remember the death of Christ this morning, in this simple act, I pray, Lord God, that you might strengthen us in our faith to trust you in the week ahead in each and every one of the circumstances we face where that trust is threatened. Strengthen us by this remembrance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.